0: Taste the Mediterranean through March 19th at Whole Foods Market. Save on animal welfare certified bone-and-beef short ribs, sustainable wild-caught sockeye salmon, and more. Find sales on Parmigiano-Reggiano, charcuterie and ground lamb. Grab an olive bull bread from the bakery. Plus, wines from the Mediterranean start at just $8.99. Taste the Mediterranean now
1: at Whole Foods Market. Must be 21+. Please drink responsibly. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem.
0: Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Welcome back, friend. It's a special time in the creepypasta community right now, you know. No, not Halloween. Who cares about that? It's because old Drew Blood finally got an ad read. And no fast-forwarding allowed. You neither, Mr. Timestamp. Just a second, friend. It's not like we have a show to do or anything. Well, what do we have here? A scaly prick? Oh, I'm kidding. Of course you're Michael Myers. Because Michael Myers wears a hockey mask on the top of his head like a hat you'd have made a better Lyle Crocodile. That's all I'm saying. Here's a few cigarettes, buddy. I'm sure you've had enough candy for one night. Mmm. Alright, that's better. So tonight we've got two stories from our old pal N.M. Brown and our new pal Gray Walker. So smoke them if you've got them and drink those glasses to the bottom, y'all. Cause old Drew Blood has a tale to tell. But first, here comes the rigmarole. Uh, You're listening to the standard edition of this program. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy ad-free versions of this and all our other episodes, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu. Sign up today. You'll get instant access to the whole enchilada, including hundreds of tales from our audio archives dating all the way back to 2012. Thank you for your support. Got a story or two you'd like to hear on the show? Send it to drewbloodhorror at gmail.com. If selected, we'll do business. For our first wholesome story tonight, we're having a romantic dinner with a perfectly happy couple. So, without further delay, I give you, from author N.M. Brown, The Body Game. You never realize quite how fucking awful your hands can be until they're shoved two inches from your nostrils. The smell, texture, ugh, the taste even. I shouldn't complain. My girlfriend Tylee says I always shit on anything nice that she tries to do for me, so I was determined to make an effort to prove her wrong this time. She was taking me on a surprise date. There had been a bit too much distance between us lately than either of us would care to admit. My job kicked my ever-loving ass that day, and all I wanted to do was go home, turn on the TV, and smoke in bed. But sometimes a few hours of your time overextending yourself is better than a few hours spent in either an argument or worse. Awkward silence. All right, fine. I'm not being completely transparent here. I guess you could say that our relationship issues are my fault. She... We had a false pregnancy scare. Her period was missing, like milk carton kid missing. We took tests and they were all negative, but it didn't matter. Not when her mother got three months of false negatives when she was pregnant with her and her brother Tom. The soonest the doctor could get her in was in nine days. Well, naturally, a lot of planning, dreaming, and talking went on in those nine days. It wasn't what I had wanted. Tylee knew I never wanted to get married. I was upfront with her about it from the start. And wouldn't you know, she mentioned the word five times in those nine days. She came at it from every angle health insurance reasons, taxes. She even went as far as to say that she didn't want the child ostracized for having a different last name as their mother, which is offensive as fuck. She became more animated, her eyes sparkling more each time she broached the subject. I mean, sure, I loved her, but it was just bad news if you asked me. As hard as I tried, she could tell I wasn't as warm to the idea of having a baby as she was, She almost seemed to feel it on a cellular level. She beamed about baby clothes and pregnancy glow. But when I looked at her, it's almost like she was rotten before my eyes, turning bad like an overripened banana. I saw stretch marks and sagging breasts. They say they're never the same after childbirth, you know. I'd never met any of the other women in her family, so it was hard to gauge just what I'd be dealing with though I didn't expect things to stay that way for long. Tylee and her family were insanely close, almost morbidly so. I was always hearing about something that had happened to this person or that one. Whether they had meant to or not, her family had conditioned, groomed in a way, her to live her life akin to a do's and don'ts list. Well, anyhow, by the time the doctor's appointment came around, her late visitor had shown up. Tylee was heartbroken, devastated in a way that I didn't know her sweet, sunshiny soul was capable of. I tried my best to be there for her, to match the energy of her sorrow while maintaining enough strength for the both of us. But after a short while, there was nothing I could do. We moved on. Whether it was in the same or opposite directions was something that remained to be seen. Tylee withdrew more and more from me until one day I came home and found her gone, completely. It scared the hell out of me at first, if I'm honest. There was enough evidence left behind for it to be obvious that she had left of her own free will. She even went so far as to change her phone number, which took only moments to do. It was so easy now. You just call a number and within five minutes you can get yourself a brand spanking new number, no questions asked. After the initial sting of rejection and betrayal wore off, I began to feel a bit different. It was like pieces shifted, revealing the bigger picture underneath. Of course I loved her, she was perfection, but sooner or later it would boil down to the bare fact that she wanted kids and I didn't. Sure, some guys can fall so in love with a girl that they'd give her children anyway just to make her happy. But how does that end up being fair to the kids? My day became less lonely and more grateful. I wished her happiness, but held her less and less responsible for my own. But I'm only human, right? I'm not going to sit here and lie to you. When she showed up on my doorstep three months later, all the healing fell away. She leapt into my arms and I gladly let her do it. As it turned out, the love I had for her was just as strong as it was the day that she left. Tally never said where she was and what she'd been doing, and I honestly didn't have the heart to ask. Even with the bigger picture revealed, I couldn't resist enjoying just a little more time. That's why I was hopeful and almost excited when she brought up the date. I was sure we could get out of the awkward rut we were stuck in, especially on Halloween, a child-filled holiday. Maybe I'd even get lucky I mused privately. She'd been spotting off and on since the pregnancy scare, she said, due to stress I imagined. That's also why I tried not to push it on her either. Anyway, ultimately there had to be a way to move past a scenario we had just narrowly avoided along with the words and lost time that went along with it. Words that never even needed to be said, and time that needn't have been missed in the first place, mind you. But I guess that rabbit cat's out of the bag now, ain't it? She stayed quiet on the ride over, leaving me questioning whether to enjoy the peace or have it invade my nerves like a sweeping plague. Her hand drifted over to the back of my neck as we pulled into the parking lot, She knew feeling her skin against that spot always sent goosebumps over my upper body. It may have been manipulation or love, but you can say that about any number of things in life, I guess. Almost every aspect of life contains the capacity of both good and evil, and whichever one you're partial to shades the connotation of it. Um, are you sure we're in the right place? I asked, genuinely concerned. Whatever we pulled up in front of didn't even look inhabited, let alone a place of business. She opened the car door in response, allowing the air to blow the scent of delicious food inside. That told me about everything I needed to know. We were going out to dinner, apparently. And Jesus Christ, I was hungry. Bursts of meat and spices traveled through my respiratory system more intensely with each step. By the time we reached the doorway, I was practically salivating. A cream-colored sign with blood-red colored letter and above the entrance read Tama Jesti. One quick Google search on Tylee's phone told us the words roughly translated to dark eats in Croatian. I'd heard of these types of places before, restaurants that serve a type of sensory deprivation effect. You basically eat in the dark, blindfolded in some places even. I'll admit I wasn't thrilled with the idea. I'm certainly not the pickiest of eaters, but I wasn't too explorative either. Either way, I like to look at what I ate. One of the first things you'll learn about working in a fancy kitchen is that people eat with their eyes before their mouths. I always wondered if that was why God made fruits and vegetables such a various array of bright colors. Picture a beige plate with a piece of skinless chicken breast rice, and poultry gravy. I mean, fuck, if you're hungry enough, you'll eat anything, but still, that's one boring ass looking meal. Throw some zucchini and squash on there with a little side salad and it looks a little better, don't it? Just something to think about. Anyway, how I felt about the experience didn't matter much. Tylie had been very understanding as of late and didn't really ask for too much for herself to begin with. Maybe this would become our new thing. Maybe there was something sensual about eating at a table together in the dark. Who the fuck was I to say unless I tried it, right? The inside wasn't very well lit, which in my mind didn't bode well for the chefs in the kitchen. Maybe their area is light-sealed but brightly lit, I thought distractedly. From what I could see, it looked appropriate for the season. At the same time, though, I doubted it looked much different in March or January. It wasn't Halloween and the pumpkin, witches, and goblins sense. The theme was just... macabre, honestly. From the sconces that covered the walls, electric candles, by the way, to the menus and all the way down to the napkin holders. All it needed was a corner candy bowl and they'd be set. Fuck, now I want candy, I remember thinking at the time. It wasn't long before we were seated at a corner booth. Two blindfolds lay over our pristinely made table, confirming my suspicions from when we had arrived. The last thing I saw after we were seated were Tylee's eyes sparkling at mine with excitement. And in no time at all, they had already brought something out for us to eat.
2: Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well.
0: Suddenly, it occurred to me that I didn't have a chance to wash my hands. It's amazing how many things get transferred by contact in one single day, mainly by touch. You scratch your armpit, go to the bathroom, adjust your balls, scratch your face. It's a common practice, in the old days of washing up before dinner at least, to wash your hands before you eat. But what about afterward? Anyway... Once I got past trying to identify the scents on my fingertips, I took my first bite. It was clean, crisp, and buttery. I imagined it was a piece of toasted bread. A minuscule grunt of satisfaction escaped my lips as it slid down my throat. I took the second bite faster, savoring it less. A tanginess enveloped the third, a rich jammy flavor melted into my tongue as tiny gel-filled bubbles burst with each bite. Savory boba on toast, I thought quizzically. Whatever it was tasted wonderful. The sounds Tilly was making assured me that she agreed. I was pleased to fill a second unattended piece. However, this one was smeared with something that tasted acrid and earthy. My eyes struggled against the blindfold as I politely reached out for the plate to put it back when a hand-blocked my way. It then reached to my shoulder as a musty-breathed man whispered a single word in my ear. Eat. My stomach filled slowly as they placed each type of size offering in front of my face. I'd never been a fan of small portions, honestly. It always just seemed like a way to rip people off. My mind reeled at the thought of how much this was all going to set me back. Sure, Tylie said it was her treat, but we share finances. Her treat is my treat, so to speak. I tried to lighten my own mood, joking to myself internally that as long as there were no tricks, we'd be all right. It never occurred to me to talk to Tylie, as awful as that sounds. We'd never really been conversational eaters in the first place. I fumbled across the table to reach for her hand. However, the moment I touched her, she gently redirected me back to my food. I kept thinking back on the interaction between Tylee and our macabre maitre d', the body game. It reminded me of that old Halloween game our moms used to set up when we were kids and had friends over, or a party. You remember that one, right? Spooky music would play while the lights were dim beyond visual recognition. The game was that we were supposedly eating a body slain by our creative mothers. It had an old poem that went with it Many and many a year has passed since they buried this man away. But his withering corpse we've here amassed, dug up from his tomb today. Here is his brain, which feels no pain. Here are his eyes, frozen in surprise. Here is his heart, never more to start. And so on and so forth. We'd be served food disguised as body parts. Bold grapes for eyes, tomato for the brain and whatnot. My favorite was always the ramen noodle intestines. My thoughts were soon interrupted by a clinking sound not too far from my face. A new course one that didn't offer much by way of scent, which wasn't always necessarily a bad thing. It had a fleshy texture, almost like ham. No, that wasn't right. It was smooth like the white of a perfectly boiled egg. It squished between my teeth and against my gums, sending rivulets of its succulence down my chin and neck. I imagined Tylee getting sprayed by splatter as I struggled to break it down into a size I could easily swallow. Not that I much wanted to. The flavor was robust, acrid, and coppery all at the same time. It left me wondering if that was their game. I imagined you'd save a hell of a lot on food costs if everyone was too disgusted to continue past the third course. I was torn between wanting to get out of there and praying for a better course to wash the taste out of my mouth. My thoughts couldn't help but turn to Tylee and wondered if she was experiencing the same thing. The decision was made for me as I felt two hands clasp my unsuspecting shoulders. Simultaneous muttering erupted all around me. I was caught totally off guard to hear Tylee's voice join the fray. Her tone was sinister, darker than I'd ever heard before. Before long, I realized they all seemed to be chanting in a language completely foreign to my ears. At that point, the mental unease was simply too much to bear. I swatted the stranger's hands away from my person and yanked my blindfold down from in front of my eyes. My breath hitched in horror as I absorbed the scene around me. I didn't hear so much as a chair move when we were eating, yet I found myself surrounded by the patrons that were seated as we arrived. The customers, wait staff, chefs stood around Tylee in celebration, like they were about to sing Happy Fucking Birthday or something. Moreover, the remnants of Tylee's plate looked perfectly normal. I recognized a few stray salad leaves, chicken bones, and even a spot of mashed potato, But when I looked down at myself, a trail of what looked like raw blood ran from my chin, dotting the front of my shirt in crimson. My mind swarmed as I frantically spat into a napkin. My mouth now tasted so raw. My stomach heaved instantly as the chanting grew louder. Everyone seemed much more aggressive now. Their eyes burned with a wicked intensity that chilled me to my core. Then, just like that, all the words stopped, enveloping the table in an almost painful silence by comparison. Tylee reached a manicured hand across the table to grab my own. Happy Father's Day, Johnny, she beamed. The crowd around her nodded and clapped in agreement. You mean Halloween, I corrected, though I instantly doubted myself for focusing on semantics at a time like this. I quivered as a wild fluttering bloomed inside of my lower gut. <laughs> what in the hell? Did I just eat? Not what? She paused, resting a hand on her childless stomach. Who? Who? Wait a minute. My mind raced. She'd told me her period had come. Then again, I can remember my mother saying she spotted with blood at first when she was pregnant with me, said she mistook it as signs of a miscarriage and it scared the shit out of her, but things were perfectly normal. I rushed to my feet, knocking over my glass and sending my silverware careening to the floor as a result of my hastiness. I didn't look back, I just ran, shuddering from the foul aftertaste. The more time that passed, the more it tasted like my tongue was decomposing. It was death and life and vomit and shit and garbage and char. Tali was on her own. She took care of herself well enough during the three-month vacation, and this current event had shown me that a large part of me wished she hadn't returned at all. I ended up driving to my office and hunkering down there for the night. Being in the large, empty building always used to make me anxious. But for that one night, I'd never felt safer. As if my thoughts had tangible power, I returned home to find most traces of Tylee once again gone. My gratitude outweighed the feeling of deja vu that threatened to overtake me. To think back on it, I couldn't have even been sure that she returned with everything left that she took off with the first time. Despite the circumstances, I was surprised at how I found myself feeling. The relief I should have felt became a crescendo in sense of impending doom. I was downright terrified, if I'm honest. The taste of... whatever that was still laid heavy on my tongue. The yellow paper screamed against the white tile of the kitchen counter, urging me to read it. When I picked it up, Initially, I thought it was a pawn shop receipt. One of those copies of a copy of one, anyway. I was wrong. The gray letterhead read, Tama Jesty, Women's Medicinal Arcane Wellness Center. It was a medical form, with aftercare instructions for a DNC procedure. Something normally performed in the event of a loss of pregnancy. And that was The Body Game by N.M. Brown, a good reminder to watch what you eat, or at least take a peek at it first. N.M. Brown is a Florida native, wife, and mother of three who reads about chasing away monsters to her kids before bed before writing them down to get them out of her head. She's the COO for our very own Chilling Tales for Dark Nights Network. Now, I'm not sure exactly what that stands for, but it basically means she does a whole bunch of shit. Her written work appears in over 40 horror anthologies, and all of which are available on Amazon. Thanks, Natalie. Let's do lunch.
1: Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see, so, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.
2: For
0: our second tale of the evening, we're taking a trip to Carpenter's Ridge, Tennessee, where a shadowy force has come to control an entire population with fear. Metaphor, anyone? So, without further delay, I give you, from Arthur Gray Walker, The Mist of Carpenter's Ridge. It was an unspoken but well-known rule. Never go into the fog. All the 200 men, women, and children of Carpenters Ridge, Tennessee, knew that to venture into it was a death sentence. At any time, like the angel who descended upon Egypt, the mist could sweep down from the mountains. And without fail, this fog brought the drifter. On this particular day, Little Billy Edwards was out in the lawn playing as young boys do. Despite seemingly being a normal child, close inspection would reveal that his little eyes were bloodshot and his skin a sickly pale. And for all of his youth, there was a distinct lack of enthusiasm or youthful mirth. His face instead betrayed anxiety and dread, eyes flicking back and forth, All of a sudden, he saw a sight that had become synonymous with the word fear. Thick, rolling clouds were flowing in from the mountains. Before he could say anything, his mother Judy had scooped him up into her arms and frantically brought him inside. His father, a tall strapping man by the name of Thomas, was already setting up the defenses that the residents of Carpenter's Ridge knew to install on their windows and doors. The owners of the hardware store miles out of town had always wondered why they ordered such heavy-duty shutters and braces, and the local mountain men had made a killing off of the many bullets and dubiously legal weapons that the bloodshot, pale-skinned, twitchy residents of Carpenter's Ridge came to pick up. They never saw the fog or the drifter, but they couldn't care less. As long as they had a steady supply of moonshine ingredients, they could afford to hand over some of their contraband. For some reason, the drifters seemed content to allow the residents to venture far enough to reach the hardware store and the mountain men, but any who had the courage to go even an inch further, were never heard from again. It was like some sick game, as though the drifter were granting them enough time to prepare, like a child counting during hide-and-seek, and the costs of being caught or cheating were far more steep. Just across the street from the Edwards family lived poor old Mrs. Hernandez. Of all the residents in the town, she alone had the greatest reason to be afraid of the fog and the being it heralded. She alone had seen what it could do, and she alone knew what it really looked like beyond the general outline. Why? Because she had witnessed her son Ben being dragged out in a moment of foolish defiance against the forces of darkness. He had intended to comfort her, to let her know that there was nothing out there, and in turn... Prove that there never had been during his years of growing up. What the drifter did to her poor boy, she never said. Watching her worst childhood nightmare and her worst adult nightmare come true all at once had broken something in her. Now she just went about the same procedure as her neighbors. She always hesitated as she passed by the small window that Ben had thrown open just before his demise wrinkled hands shaking and reddened eyes welling up with tears. In his own house down the road lived Randy West, a local freelance journalist. Behind square-rimmed glasses, his reddened eyes displayed a morbid curiosity as well as dread gazed out the window. All over his house were newspaper clippings, alleged sightings of the town's infamous specter and written testimonies by eyewitnesses. Perhaps the correct term for the latter would have been secondhand transcriptions of their crazed ramblings and screams. Additionally, he kept a record of any patterns the creature seemed to go by and who he took. No, he corrected himself with trepidation. The drifters never taken anybody. He knew it as well as everyone in town. Those who stepped outside were dead in the millisecond their feet left the threshold. There was never a drop of blood, never a weapon, never any evidence that anyone or anything had been there. There were only the screams. The homes in Carpenter's Ridge were filled with the hushed sounds of bickering and panicked weeping. Any and all sound was snuffed out as quickly as a candle in a windstorm when the second of the three most abhorrent sounds known to the residents of Carpenter's Ridge echoed through the dead streets, with the first being the screams. The whistle. Even the fussiest of babies in the town, even the most frantic of dogs, every living thing that made a noise was brought to an instinctual hush when that accursed tune was heard. The fog was merely a herald. What signaled that he was in Carpenter's Ridge was the whistling. It was not of any known tune or song that could be placed, and no matter how people tried, none could replicate it. It mattered not. The worst nightmare of the townsfolk had come true yet again. The drifter was here. Peering through the window, Randy strained his eyes to see through the fog blanket in the town. Then in the center, his eyes caught it. The mist parting like the Red Sea before him, but never staying off of him. The outline of the drifter strode into the town square, his merry tune contrasting sharply with the terrified silence. He had the same appearance as always, or as much as people could see. He was at least nine feet tall, clad in what appeared to be a ragged old coat and hat. His form almost resembled a scarecrow, and his gait was seemingly unsteady, jerky, and yet somehow deliberate, like something that knew how humans were supposed to act and sought to make a deliberate mockery of it. And this too disturbed the residents of Carpenter's Ridge. Why did he bother playing these games if he wanted to kill them? Why did he only kill people that dared to venture out? As the residents huddled inside their homes, the uncanny phantasm continued its long jerky strides that accursed whistle piercing the eardrums of the people like large invisible needles. The drifter then proceeded to engage in the same ritual that he always did during his visits. Rather than attack, he instead began to run his fingers along the outside of each house. He did not scratch, though. He simply ran his fingers along the walls before casually moving on to the next building. There was something else that the people of Carpenter's Ridge had often considered. Perhaps this creature... This foul, terrifying beast that had them terrified and shaken in their homes was blind. Had he been anything of the mortal plane, they should have felt sorry for him at the very least. However, over the years and with each new generation, each new visit, it occurred to them. He only killed when people stepped into the mist. Was it possible that this unnatural fog acted as his eyes? It never truly mattered. All they knew for sure was that so long as they stayed inside, they were safe. All but one man, the town Crackpot. An old Vietnam veteran known by the ironic name of Charlie had always been the one to blow his money away on the heaviest ordnance that the bootleggers peddled. He was the only one among the people of Carpenter's Ridge who ever spoke about the drifter aloud. Nobody paid him any mind, possibly a holdover from his treatment when he came home, or so they thought. He had seen what the drifter did when it got a hold of some hapless person. There had been Jacob Bennett in 1979. An outsider who had disobeyed the unspoken rule of not leaving the home in the fog. Charlie had heard the screams. And just like that, he would be brought back to the humid jungles. Would smell that unmistakable smell. Watching as his friends and enemies alike were devoured by the messy teeth of the machine gun fire. Nothing, not even the Wraith, could ever mimic those sounds but it was enough to remind him. And God is his witness, he was tired. Tired of that whistle. Tired of the collective cowardice of the townsfolk. Tired of returning to the jungles. This time, he would finish this beast or it would kill Charlie. Either way, the screaming could finally end for him. And so he waited beside his door A loaded shotgun clenched in his hands, bloodshot eyes blazing with rage rather than saturated with fear. At long last, the accursed drifter's whistle came back round to him. Just as it rounded the corner, Charlie burst out of his door, then fired off two shells into the shape in the mist. What happened next? was something that was a horror for the ages for the people of Carpenter's Ridge. The figure, after Charlie had shot it, staggered. The veteran stood, rage replaced by bewilderment as his enemy put a hand to his chest and pulled it away. A dark tar-like substance began to run from the creature's fingertips as he gazed at his hand, apparently just as shocked as Charlie was. Then, as he was about to reload, the figure produced what was known ever afterwards as the third of Carpenter Ridge's most abhorrent noises. He laughed. It was not merely a sinister derisive laugh. While he was clearly mocking the attempt at ending his reign of terror over the town, it was also the sort of laugh one makes when a practical joke is played at their own expense. The rafe's raucous, ghoulish cackles echoed through the silent town, the reverberations causing the citizens to almost think there were at least 50 of him. He seemed to genuinely find the very concept of his own demise to be humorous. Then, as Charlie stood frozen with terror, the beast suddenly grabbed hold of him. The laughter accompanied the screams of the poor, crazy old man. Something changed in the minds of the people of Carpenter's Ridge. People had died by the drifter's hand before, but only those foolhardy enough to challenge his existence or to leave town. This, however, was the death of one who had believed and who had retaliated against the whistling beast that tormented them. As near suicidal and as reckless as his actions were, They all understood why he would want to do it. He had suffered long in a war he never asked to join, and had been subject to further torment back home. And on top of all of that, he had to endure an unknown presence cowing all of the people of Carpenter's Ridge in their homes. Of all of them, he had been the bravest. The drifter was beginning to scoop up the body of the first man of this town to challenge him. The first time anyone had seen the after effects of his axe. Suddenly, a shot rang out. The creature jolted, then whirled around in the direction of whoever dared to challenge him. Mrs. Hernandez, eyes brimming over but full of hate and rage towards this aberration, stood on her porch. A smoking rifle in her hands. Seeming to scoff now, the drifter began to trek towards her. The report of another gun rang out. This time from Randy West. Then another and another. Each shot brought another spray of the ebony fluid from the beast's form. Soon the drifter was surrounded no longer by frightened sheep. He was now surrounded by furious wolves wolves, he seemed to realize, that had seen him bleed. Initially, he seemed to gain a glimmer of fear at his former prey fighting back. His shadowy face briefly showed signs of being that of wide bloodshot eyes. For the first time, the residents could just barely make out his face. This illusion quickly melted away into a pair of glowing scarlet lanterns where eyes would be. An enraged shriek emanated from him. Quicker than they could react, he began skittering towards them like an insect. He pounced upon the hapless Brandon Phillips, grabbing him and beginning to run back towards the mountains. He was stopped by Thomas, who had taken position between two houses and was wielding the shotgun of the old man. Leveling the weapon an inch from the creature's face, he pulled the trigger, causing both barrels to leave an enormous hole in his head. He howled in pain, humiliation, anger, and undisguised fear as he released Brandon. The drifter abandoned his quarry and began skittering away from the townsfolk, who continued firing intent on driving him out. Before he reached the edge of town, he looked back at all of them, his healing but loathsome face vowing a reckoning. As if to emphasize this vow, the fog began to change its shape. In the mist were the agonized, decayed visages of those who had been taken. Among them was the recently added veteran. The message was clear. The people just glared back, as if to say that they would be ready. With that silent exchange, the Drifter skittered away from them, back to wherever he nested. It was a bittersweet victory, if a victory at all. Another one of their own was now dead, and the Drifter had escaped justice. What's more, he would be returning with a vengeance possibly tomorrow, possibly a month, a year, maybe another ten years. Yet the residents feared not. Even as they buried poor Charlie, for however fearful they may have been of the drifter, now they all knew that he was afraid of them as well. They knew that supernatural creature or not, he could bleed and he could hurt. But most of all, they knew that it was no use trying to hide away from this monster. The only true solution was to face it head on and force it to feel terror for them. Maybe one day they could find a way to permanently end him, but until then, they would not hide from the drifter. This they swore as the fog began to burn away, a clear beaming sun in its place. that was The Mist of Carpenter's Ridge by Gray Walker, a good reminder that courage is contagious. Maybe there are monsters out there, but there are way more of us than there are of them. Gray Walker is an aspiring writer from Alabama, currently working on an MA in creative writing. His favorite genres are sci-fi, fantasy, and horror. He wants to shout out to fellow Reddit authors Elias Withero. C.K. Walker, Matt Demersky, and Mr. Outlaw. And you can read more from Gray at his WordPress page, thegraywalker.wordpress.com. Thanks, Gray. And while you're at it, please remember to stop by our Apple Podcast page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and subscribe. The charts are based on subscriptions, not listens, by the way. So feel free to accidentally subscribe as many times as you want. I won't tell anyone, I promise. And if you feel like spreading the word and helping old Drew Blood out and convincing a friend or two to subscribe to my podcast, that would help me out greatly, and I'd really appreciate it. To hear a premium, ad-free edition of tonight's and all our other podcast episodes, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the upper menu. You'll find yourself at com, where you can become a patron for as little as $5 a month, and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, including past episodes of this program and all our other shows, and hundreds of standalone releases, all of them ad-free and available to download or stream. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You'll find me personally on Facebook and Instagram and sometimes Twitter. Sometimes. And remember, we're accepting submissions. If you've got a story or two you'd like to be featured on this show, send it to drewbloodhorror at gmail.com. If selected, you'll get the full treatment. Well, I'm afraid this is where we part ways, at least till next week. So grab a drink for the road, friend, but pace yourself, will you? Now that you barfed up your dinner, it might hit you a little harder than you thought. So may the wind be at your back, and may the road rise up to meet you. Happy Halloween, all, and go fuck yourself. <laughs> Good night, y'all.